Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Many in Washington anticipate a congressional agenda packed with investigations come January. But how exactly will those take shape? Drew Lippman moderates a conversation between Greg Brower, co-chair of Brownstein's government investigations practice, and Will Moschella, who, prior to his career at the DOJ, served as the chief legal counsel and parliamentarian of the House Committee on the Judiciary. They discuss Congress's oversight tools and available enforcement actions, the limit of congressional authority, and the ripest subjects for congressional oversight in the 116th Congress. Welcome to another Brownstein podcast. I'm Drew Littman, and today I'm joined by Greg Brower, Government Investigations Co-Chair and Shareholder, who most recently served as the Assistant Director for the Office of Congressional Affairs at the FBI, and Will Michella, Shareholder, who has extensive executive and legislative branch experience, most recently serving as Assistant Attorney General for Legislative Affairs, and then as Principal Associate Deputy Attorney General at the Department of Justice. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for joining today. Let's jump right in. Greg, what are the ripest subjects for congressional oversight in 2019 with Democrats having taken over the House? That's a great question. I think the biggest target uh, looking forward to the next Congress is the Trump administration itself, the executive branch, and so the various departments and agencies that uh, the new House majority feels uh, have not been adequately overseen um, in the past by the Republican majority. Uh, beyond the executive branch, I think we're looking at uh, a few key industries uh, and topics, including global warming, uh, pharmaceuticals, including drug prices, uh, the opioid crisis. And so I think it's going to be a multifaceted approach by the House uh, with a, a broad range of industries being affected. So you're describing two broad categories of oversight. One is oversight of the Trump administration, the executive branch generally, and the other the second one is oversight of the private sector. Will, do you see any other topics or any thoughts on that bifurcation? Sure. I actually think there's a little overlap also. Um, some of the areas that uh, certain key Democratic leaders have indicated an interest in is the engagement of the private sector with the Trump administration mm-hmm. for various uh, policies. And uh, this kind of oversight has certainly occurred before. So, for example, the Energy and Commerce Committee 15 or so years ago looked into uh, an energy task force that was chaired by Dick Cheney. Um, there have been all kinds of other uh, examples uh, of that. Uh, the other thing that I would keep in mind is in addition to uh, committees of Congress conducting oversight, Congress has some other tools available to it. Uh, One is the General Accountability Office, which uh, often does uh, uh, engages in oversight on behalf of the Congress. And and of course, um, uh, committee chairs can influence the direction of in, the inspectors general. The inspectors general have kind of dual at report the at the departments. And so they have dual reporting, uh, usually to the department head, but also uh, to the various committees of Congress. And so uh, that may also be an avenue in which the new Democratic majority brings its influence to bear on the direction of investigations and oversight. Hmm. And how does an investigation typically unfold, that is, an investigation by a congressional committee? What steps would be visible to a company that was 
targeted in a congressional investigation? That's a great question. There isn't uh, any standard procedure. Um, It could uh, be as innocuous as starting with a phone call from uh, a staff investigator asking for background information. A company could receive a letter inquiring uh, about a certain issue or or practice. Uh, many of us who have been involved in congressional oversight in the past call these dinglegrams, uh, made famous by a former chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee, John Dingle, who was famous for sending both the administration and uh, companies you know, letters with 10, 20, 50 interrogatories and oftentimes asking for you know, documents and answers to specific questions. Uh, other tools available to committees, of course, include staff interviews, uh, subpoenas for documents and testimony, depositions, and, of course, the uh, infamous public congressional hearing. Mm-hmm. Where, um, for photographic purposes, CEOs are occasionally required to all stand up in line and, and take an oath and raise their hands and take an oath, which is always uh, lands in the newspapers. And, and you'll hear the, the clicks of uh, the photographer's cameras uh, g- going from the, uh, the, the well right in front of the witness table. And, and just to clarify something you said, if a company receives a letter, especially at an early stage, shortly after uh, the 116th Congress convenes, it's quite possible that that company is not the sole target of whatever investigation it's going on. It's it's possible that that letter went to many, many similarly situated companies. Is that accurate to say? Absolutely. We've, we've seen that. The other thing is there may be parallel investigations. Mm. It is not infrequent that a congressional investigation could run parallel with some other governmental investigation, whether it's at the FCC, the FTC, SEC, Department of Justice. You have that with Russian election interference now. You have multiple committee inquiries as well as a special counsel. Special counsel and the intelligence committees. Even the work of state AGs or um, uh, private lawsuits may uh, give rise to uh, uh, congressional oversight. And of course, members of Congress read the newspaper every morning and investigative reporters uh, produce information that rises to the attention of Congress and their oversight staff. And uh, those certainly can give rise to further inquiry. Greg, how do you see congressional committees balancing their legislative responsibilities and oversight responsibilities. I think this is especially relevant given that Democrats, newly in control of the House, probably have a long legislative wish list. I don't know about an agenda just yet, but but a lot to do on both sides potentially. Yeah, it it sort of depends upon each committee chair and and how he or she sees uh, that division of labor between traditional legislating and what many of the, uh, if not all of the, the new coming, the incoming chairs view as long overdue oversight. Uh, as you point out, Drew, with the the chamber split, uh, with the Democrats about to assume control of the House and the Republicans maintaining control of the Senate, it will become uh, clear pretty quickly to the Democrat majority in the House that it can do all the great legislating it wants, but there may be a huge roadblock in the form of the Republican majority in the Senate to getting anything to the White House and signed by the president. And so I suspect what we may see is is Democrats engaging in the usual committee legislating work that is, is traditionally done by committees, but frustration could quickly set in 
which will then cause the, the new majorities to shift abruptly to oversight, which they have much more control of in terms of the impact. Mm. Will? I'd also say that, you know, balancing uh, oversight and legislative responsibilities is one way to look at it. But uh, the Congressional Oversight Authority is part and parcel of its legislative responsibility. Uh, In fact, the Supreme Court has told us that Congress's oversight authority, which is not uh, mentioned anywhere in the Constitution, uh, derives from its legislative authority, authority, is coextensive with its legislative authority. And so to the extent that Congress can legislate in any particular area, uh, that means that Congress can uh, conduct oversight and investigations ostensibly for the purpose of then legislating. Nuts and bolts. Will, in what circumstances can a congressional committee issue a subpoena? As a practical matter, what are the options for a company that has received a subpoena from a congressional committee? Sure. Um, well, in this day and age, uh, there isn't much impediment to issuing a uh, congressional subpoena. So the subpoena authority uh, of the Congress, of, of either the House or Senate, is delegated generally to committees. Committees then establish committee rules, and most committees then delegate the authority to uh, authorize and issue a subpoena to the chairman. Um, so what are the options? Well, first, you should consult counsel, because there are a number of responsibilities uh, uh, that obtain uh, when one receives compulsory process. And there are a couple questions to take a look at. Does the committee have jurisdiction to issue this subpoena? Is that, that is one potential defect in a congressional subpoena uh, to be aware of. So, the, uh, And it's the one area. There, there are usually few uh, opportunities to challenge a subpoena, but that's certainly uh, one specific one. Uh, committees only have limited jurisdiction, and uh, they can't act outside of that authority. Back in the day, early 90s, I served as staff director of a House Oversight Subcommittee. So I know that Congress has subpoena power. But, Greg, can you tell me if congressional committees frequently issue subpoenas? We, we hear a lot of talk about subpoenas these days, but we don't see a lot of subpoenas. Or do things usually get worked out before a subpoena would be issued? In other words, the threat of a subpoena, in other words. Traditionally, things do generally get worked out before um, a chairman needs to exercise his or her subpoena authority. There has, in the recent uh, months in the last year, there's been a flurry of subpoenas on the House side. I would submit mostly for political effect mm-hmm. uh, with respect to the executive branch. And so typically, the situation is worked out whereby a counsel for the target of the subpoena can work out a, a with committee staff, a compromise solution whereby uh, Documents are produced, perhaps a witness is provided for a hearing, all without the need for a subpoena. And and so we're not aware of anyone in the recent past being penalized for defying a congressional subpoena, much less being held in contempt of Congress, which I understand is the penalty. My, my experience is that we threatened subpoenas routinely and didn't have to offer them, so we never got to the contempt stage. Right. So um, typically, uh, there are a lot of subpoena threats, but not a lot of subpoenas. And lately, when there have been a lot of subpoenas, or more than usual, there have been a lot of contempt threats, mm-hmm. but no actual contempt proceedings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's, it's something that is, in my experience, more political than anything else. It's a way of uh, 
uh, for a committee chair or a committee to um, to ex- express dissatisfaction with uh, the response from an executive branch agency or a private sector subpoena target or or target of a request, uh, but it's rarely carried out to its legal conclusion in court. And is that because, Will, it, it would be so difficult? Greg mentioned carried to its conclusion in court. As a practical matter, you would need, I think, a vote of the full House at some point uh, for contempt citation. And um, I send the sergeant at arms to, to arrest the balking witness. Is that about right? Uh, that's about right. So yeah. there are a couple different processes available to uh, the House or Senate. One of the reasons why we haven't seen uh, contempts uh, have been that a lot of subpoenas that have been directed, for example, to the executive branch are stymied by an assertion of executive privilege. And Congress takes the position that only a countervailing constitutional privilege can defeat uh, a constitutionally authorized uh, subpoena, which is why when a private company or individual uh, receives a subpoena, you know, they really need to consult counsel because uh, they may have to negotiate issues regarding uh, attorney-client and work product privileges. With regard to enforcement, though, uh, uh, the um, House and Senate have uh, three different options. One is criminal contempt, and that is uh, there's a statutory process for that in which a full vote of the House or Senate is had, and then the contempt citation is referred to the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, who would then prosecute uh, the contemnor. Uh, Although this process has not been used in about 90 or so years, the Congress has the inherent contempt authority. When you mentioned Sergeant at Arms, Sergeant of Arms could be directed after a vote of the full House to uh, arrest uh, someone and bring them uh, for trial before the bar of the House. Now, the purpose of that is not punishment, as is criminal contempt. The purpose there is to disgorge the documents requested. What would actually then happen once the individual is is arrested, his or her lawyer would file a habeas petition in federal district court, and the issue would uh, ultimately be uh, litigated uh, there. And then uh, there have been some uh, attempts really in uh, recent congressional history, and by that I mean the last decade or so, in which the uh, after a vote of the full House, the Congress actually tries to enforce their subpoena civilly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the uh, Congress would go to court and uh, attempt to enforce uh, their subpoena that occurred with the contempt of Harriet Myers, that occurred with regard to the uh, contempt citation of uh, Eric Holder for documents relating to um, uh, uh, an enforcement action uh, called Fast and Furious. So three different options available to the Congress, but they are uh, only dusted off every once in a while. And I want to just go back to something you said. You mentioned that Congress views its subpoena power is unlimited. If I'm right, Greg, no court has ever placed limits on Congress's subpoena power. And when you mentioned countervailing constitutional right, Most people, even some of the sophisticated people we deal with every day, are surprised to hear that, for example, attorney-client privilege is not necessarily a a right that could spare you from a congressional subpoena. Do I have that about right? That's right. It's executive privilege that's the big one in terms of the countervailing privilege most often asserted. But, of course, it requires the president to actually uh, assert that privilege. Um, 
even though the attorney-client privilege is not theoretically recognized by Congress with respect to a request for documents or testimony, I'm not sure that there's ever been a court which has heard argument on this issue that has decided that the recipient of a subpoena is required to turn over privileged documents. I think most district court judges, certainly those here in D.C., would be loath to decide that despite what happens in the courtroom every other day and every other case, there is no such thing as attorney-client privilege in that context, but it has not been litigated, not to my knowledge. That illuminates it for me, but it still, I think, illustrates the pitfalls for a corporate executive or anyone who's not in this line of work who receives a subpoena out of the blue. Let's talk a little more specifically. There seems to be a mounting concern over the size and power of ever-expanding social media and tech companies like Facebook. How might Congress use its oversight authority to take on a Facebook? Do oversight hearings sometimes provide the basis for legislation, for example, revising the antitrust laws to more clearly include Facebook? I'm using Facebook, of course, only because they've been in the news so much recently. Will, your thoughts? Congress often uses its legislative uh, or its oversight authority to um, uh, inform its legislative activity. Uh, Recently, the permanent uh, subcommittee on investigations in the Senate conducted a fairly extensive um, investigation of Backpage, and uh, Congress then enacted amendments to the Communication Decency Act to uh, address the issues that were uh, exposed uh, as a part of that uh, very important uh, congressional investigation and oversight activity. So it it is absolutely uh, frequent that uh, the oversight authority of the Congress informs its legislative decisions. Greg, thoughts on oversight as a, as a predicate for legislating? Yeah, I, I think Will hit it, hit it on the head. It's, uh, uh, it, it, I think, I think it's, it's becoming more of the norm to do oversight first and then, and then legislate based upon the results of that oversight. And there's a certain logic to that, as Will articulated, and I think we'll see more of that. And I would say, I'll just add, in the Facebook context, um, at least the intelligence committees have um, heard from Facebook executives. Other committees have started looking into uh, these platforms and the ability to uh, disseminate false information uh, that may impact uh, U.S. elections. And so I think that's already begun. I think that there will probably be more of that to come. And and you could probably name half a dozen congressional committees that would theoretically have jurisdiction over some of Facebook's operations. Does that sound about right? Absolutely. And you mentioned, you know, are there any limitations on Congress? Congress's authority. I'll get to back to what the Supreme Court has said. Congress's oversight authority is coextensive as its legislative authority. And of course, um, modern jurisprudence tells us that the Commerce Clause authority of the Congress is um, not without limits, but uh, there are few economic, if any, economic activities that uh, Congress's uh, legislative power doesn't reach. And we've mentioned the Democrats take over the House. Is it fair to say that when the president's party controls the committees, oversight 
languishes a bit, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, when the opposition party takes over the committee's oversight becomes more aggressive. Generally the case, Greg? I think that's generally the case, although we saw what I would describe as an anomalous situation in the last several months where you have you had a Republican-controlled um, House, of course, and certain uh, Republican committee chairs demanding documents from DOJ mm-hmm. of an incredibly sensitive and classified nature that I would submit in uh, in normal times would have resulted in the White House and the president asserting executive privilege. But in these situations, the White House, uh, the president uh, chose not to do that. And it created a very unique situation that uh, kind of left DOJ and uh, the rest of the intelligence community uh, on its own without top cover from the White House to fend off these requests. Mm. And, and, and as I think of it, I was working for Senator Barbara Boxer in 1993, the first year the Clintons were in the White House. Democrats controlled the Senate. The Whitewater hearings began under a Democratic Banking Committee chairman. It was uh, Don Regal, senator from Michigan, was the one who started the Whitewater hearings. When Republicans took the Senate in the 94 election, they formed a special select committee on Whitewater, but it was basically the Banking Committee just recast. Uh, Senator Alphonse D'Amato from New York was the chairman as he was the chairman of the Banking Committee. But it was Regal who began that investigation into a Democratic president. Look, I think there are going to be opportunities for bipartisan uh, oversight. A lot of the focus has been on what some might refer to as scandal oversight or now kind of uh, re-energized oversight over the executive branch. That's certainly going to happen. And part of the reason for that is that the Democrats' priorities are different from the Republicans' priorities. You Mm -hmm. only investigate um, uh, the executive branch if if you disagree with uh, a policy uh, decision. But I also think that there's been a lot of oversight uh, that has occurred, that has been bipartisan. You can look at what the Senate Intelligence Committee has done. You can take a look at what has been done on opioids. I mentioned the back page uh, oversight by the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations in the Senate. Uh, these are all things that were bipartisan. They may not have made the front page in the New York Times or the Washington Post, but I th- expect those things to continue. And if uh, you're a company and you receive an inquiry from a committee and it is bipartisan, um, that's potentially even more problematic because it won't just be viewed as uh, a political issue. And um, uh, that's a time to really take your uh, uh, counsel's advice, uh, your political advisor's advice, and uh, really think about uh, a careful response to uh, the congressional inquiry. And, and uh, Greg, some congressional oversight can be not scandal oversight, but process oversight of the administration, right? I'm thinking of um, questions about whether the administration followed proper procedures in shrinking national monuments, which which has never been done before. People may come out in different places substantively, but I think at first that's a process issue. I think that's right. And that's the type of oversight that I would submit is probably best left to the various inspectors general, mm-hmm. generally. But of course, it's hard to convince a congressional committee chair that he or she should should uh, defer to the OIG, the relevant OIG, and, and, and move on to other things. There's oftentimes parallel, uh, as Will mentioned earlier, parallel investigations that might include a, a, a congressional committee, an OIG, maybe GAO. And the most complicated aspect of all of this, in my view, is the fact that there are certain civil liability 
issues mm-hmm. and, and even criminal liability issues that can arise in the, in the context of what seems like maybe a simple congressional inquiry. And so uh, targets of such inquiries and their counsel need to be especially mindful uh, and need to think three steps ahead, so to speak, about what does it mean civilly and criminally potentially if I simply provide these documents pursuant to this seemingly relatively friendly request by a congressional committee? That needs to be – there needs to be a holistic, comprehensive approach to even the simplest of, of cooperation with a committee. Well, lots of reasons to seek advice and, and proceed judiciously if you find yourself the subject of a congressional oversight investigation. This has been a Brownstein podcast on congressional oversight. Thank you, gentlemen, for participating. Thanks, Drew. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.